Welcome to the Axis Effect podcast with our monthly guest on Global Newswatch, Mick Mulroy, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and Paramilitary Operations Officer for the CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News, joins us for a monthly review of global events and their impact on our lives. And here is the host of the Axis Effect podcast and CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Axis Effect. And we're here with Mick Mulroy, National Security Defense Analyst, and our monthly report on Global News Watch. Hey, Mick, welcome back. Great to be back. Looking <laughs> forward to our discussion. <laughs> that was a really quick intro. We just got a lot to talk about. I know how crazy busy you are. So much going on in the world with this banking and everything else, but I really want to focus on some global updates with you as we always do. And I know the most recent, there's two big things we want to talk about. Obviously the update with Russia and Ukraine, which is always an update in the news. But now that China is stepping into a diplomatic role between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is kind of a scary thought. I mean, I know they're one of the big, one of our strongest countries everybody relies on, but they're now kind of moving deeper into the Middle East, and now they're coming after, I guess, to be the um, go-between with Saudi Arabia. And I want to kind of get an input from you on this, because I understand the agreement is to reestablish their diplomatic relations, but I'm not so sure where does that leave us as the United States if China's the one moving into that position. So I think you're you're right. This is causing a lot of concern in the sense that China is trying to increase its influence in the Middle East. They're trying to do that around the world. But traditionally, the United States has been the main interlocutor when it comes to Middle East peace. Saudi Arabia and Iran have been at odds basically for seven years when Iranians stormed the Saudi Arabia embassy after uh, Saudi Arabia executed a prominent Shia cleric. And we've seen this play out in particularly in the war in Yemen, where both Saudi Arabia and Iran are supporting opposite sides there. So I'd first like to say that if this does, and this is to be determined whether the agreement will hold, but if it does lead to a, a uh, significant or a sustainable peace, then any violence that, that is lowered in Yemen, I think, is a good thing. Even if the United States didn't facilitate that, it's something that's desperately needed for all the suffering that's occurred there. So if they're in, in the first step is they're going to open embassies again, and then they're going to have their minister of foreign affairs meet, uh, you know, their respective. So, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Now, the negative, at least from our country's side, is China is now obviously, and they're listening to them and they're brokering these agreements. So that does indicate that we may have some waning influence in a very key place of the world, the Middle East. And I think part of that is because our messaging. We said we were pivoting from the Middle East. Most of the people I know in the Middle East took that as either turning away or actually turning our back on them. And I don't think that's what we intended, but it's apparently how it was perceived. And that is important of this. And then they potentially look for another another uh, superpower. And China was more than willing to take that role. Well, from what I'm reading, it was, they were saying pretty much, you know, China's moving into the Gulf Arab states because it's the perception that the U.S. is winding down 
this involvement in the Middle East. And I know last year when Biden pulled out and with the Taliban, we had a lot going on. We've been pretty quiet. Is it perception that we're moving out of winding down all involved with the Middle East or is it just the perception given so China could kind of get more assertive and step into more power where we're not as strong in that area? So the term pivot came from our national security strategy, which places China and Russia competition, strategic competition, if you will, at a higher plane than than much of what was happening in the Middle East to include counterterrorism. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that the Middle East isn't super important, not just to the world, but to the United States in particular, because it's it's a lot more than just counterterrorism, right? So these relations, it's huge when it comes to the energy supply of the world. It's huge when it comes to the financial sector of the world and on and on and the stability in Europe and all these all these different things. So I think that's why I was saying I think it was more of a, a messaging problem on our side. We were saying pivoting like we thought, you know, now that we spent 20 years fighting a war, you know, the counterterrorism war, we're shifting to this strategic competition. But they took it as, OK, so, you know, you're not that interested in the Middle East anymore. And I think, you know, we just saw Secretary Austin on his visit to the Middle East, which I think is very important. And he's the right person to do it. He's a former CENTCOM commander. He has a lot of respect there. He has a lot of relationships there. And I think one of his main missions is to say the United States isn't going anywhere. We are here to stay and we're going to be good partners. And I hope hope that message was well received. And I think that's part of our effort to ensure that we do not cede the territory to China at all. Well, it's Beijing because they're saying that you know, they're arguing that Beijing should play a more active role and step into it. China's then saying, well, we're not going to step into a vacuum. We're just here for, you know, to promote global security initiatives. So I feel like there's some mixed messages there of what's really going on and who's stepping into this and why. So China essentially looks for relationships because they have a very substantial need for resources. They don't like to get involved in any conflicts. And they basically look for what's in the best interest of China. So a lot of countries, particularly in Africa, feel like they were used at the end of the relationship with China because they came in there and exploited their natural resources and do not do much to actually you know, develop countries like the United States. We have a whole organization, USAID, that does help developing countries develop their own resources so they can, they can advance. Whereas China essentially gets paid to develop the resources and then gets a substantial part of it. And unfortunately, in my perspective, usually the people who live in the country are the ones that are not included in the benefits. It's usually leadership and then China. So China does not have the same way of doing business in the United States. I hope that countries realize that and look at other countries that they've had a long-term relationship when it comes to deciding whether they want to have a long-term relationship with China. Well, I also saw that China beyond this, you know, they have invested heavily in the infrastructure for energy in Saudi Arabia. And then interesting, they've provided, I think it was like submarines to fight, quote unquote, piracy, which probably they are. But how do you see that supply of pretty much military grade submarines going to intensify relationships with the U.S. and then possibly become allies with Russia, though they haven't quite come out and said that, but they haven't said otherwise. How do you think that whole impact in terms of maybe a military partnership may play out? So that, that is uh, very concerning to the United States military. We have a military relationship with Saudi Arabia. A lot of our advanced weapon systems really can't be around Chinese for security reasons. And uh, China, in many cases, can undersell us because their stuff isn't that good, but it looks the same. 
and countries do not know that it's not that good until they use it. And then when they do use it, it's too late because they already bought like 50 of them, right? So they try to go in there and sell, you know, air missile defenses, aircraft, ballistic missiles, and all those things. I'm not saying they're completely bad, but they're not near the level of the American weapon systems. So that is that is problematic for us, and we certainly want our partners to also use the same type of systems we do because it makes us more compatible, right? That's why NATO has standardized weapon systems. But that's allies. But partners, we'd also like to be more in line with us so that we can actually fight alongside each other if necessary. So that is, I think, very problematic to the U.S. overall, but certainly the U.S. military. I don't know how effective their submarines would be, and I don't know that Saudi Arabia is really at the advanced naval state to be using submarines. But that is something, I, to your point, the United States is going to look at and probably do what they can to get them to change their mind or, or possibly prevent future purchases. I want to ask you a question, Mick. I know we talked about the difference between White House truth and ground truth with you before. And I want to kind of clear up this because when we're talking about weaponry, we're talking about the submarines to Marjorie's point. China does, while they do sell drones and weapons into countries in that region, they're saying that they do nowhere on the scale of the United States and without political conditions. I mean, so that to me should be a bigger concern having a stronger ally and foothold in the Middle East, especially if we're perceived as a state to not be as involved. That's a balance that the United States has essentially always had because international human rights has been part of our foreign policy since the beginning. It's not part of China's foreign policy because, I mean, heck, they have one million people incarcerated because of their religion, the Uyghurs who are Muslim. So they don't go around lecturing anybody. The United States, of course, we're not perfect on civil rights, but we try to get better, I think. I think that's a fair statement. I'm biased, of course. And we certainly do promote international human rights, right? The right to vote, the right to select your own government, the right uh, women's rights, go down the list, the right to free speech and association and religion. So we don't disconnect that. We tend to use the people's interests and stuff we have to try to influence them. Now, some would argue, well, if they don't, if they're not perfect, then we should you know, pull out. Well, my argument would be, okay, then the only influence they're going to have is China, which means their their human rights records are going to go down and down and down. So there's a balance. That's why I call it a balance, right? It's not all in or all out because it would neither help our, our economy when it comes to selling, you know, weapon systems, nor would it help international human rights. Because if we just pull out of, out of the discussion, I don't know that now there's plenty of European countries that would try to fill that, but I don't think they can. I like the United States. Okay. I want to kind of pivot over talking about human rights and with China and Russia. I, the International Criminal Court just opened today, I think it was in the news, open to war crime cases for the first time. I think there's two cases that are now open with the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I mean, let's pivot over to this a little bit. To me, I thought we were always pursuing war crimes, but they're saying they're planning to open two war crime cases for the first time to issue warrants and arrests. But I know things are still messy over there, and we have some things we do need to discuss with the update over there. So, I mean, where are we at with Russia, Ukraine, and some of these war crimes? Because the last, I think last time we talked to you, Russian soldier actually ran, defected over, and you the hands up, like, like, I'm a Russian, I'm a prisoner, I was put out to war, I saw things I couldn't, I was being beaten. He, I think it was, I want to say Switzerland or somewhere, he was crossing the borders just for safety to turn himself in. 
Where are we at with the war crimes against Russia and the and the soldiers over there and what's going on on that aspect from just more of the humanity aspect? And then we could pivot into some of the hardcore stuff of what's going on, on the ground. So the Ukrainian prosecutors and the international criminal courts prosecutors have been investigating, I think, essentially since the Russian invasion began in February last year. Right. So and it's on a scale that we haven't seen since World War Two era, potentially with some exceptions in the Far East. But certainly it's something that we, we had hoped would never be seen again. Just all out direct attacks against civilian populations, rape, murder, kidnapping, summary executions. All these things have been occurring and keep occurring. So I think right now what you're seeing is they're taking the investigation and they're turning them into cases, right? So they're getting ready for the prosecution of these individuals, this unit or this chain of command, because this looks like to most people, it was systemic. So it was not something that just happened because that does happen in war. But as long as their chain of command holds them responsible and prosecutes them, it's not necessarily a systemic planned action. It is very apparent that the Russian chain of command wants these soldiers to terrorize the civilians of Ukraine and have promoted this and done nothing to stop them. In fact, many of these units have been awarded for citations of bravery, which is just a joke. These aren't soldiers, these are just criminals in uniform. So I think this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the prosecution of these individuals. Our Attorney General Merrick Garland just went, I think it was two weeks ago. I think that was probably because he offered them some of our assistance because they need a lot of prosecutors. This is such an enormous task to do these investigations and then to do these prosecutions. I think you're going to see this going on probably for the rest of our lives because that's part of Hopefully, we'll get to a point where we do a reconciliation process. And part of it is holding people accountable from the foot soldier all the way up to the top. You know, I had read that in the past year, and you can correct me if I'm incorrect, that there have been over 65,000 war crimes committed by Russia, which would equate to about 178 war crimes a day. So as you say, it will go on and on forever. But on the flip side, it also seems like Russia is really suffering for this war, because if you look up, you were saying about 2000 men per 100 meters were killed in this war. So it keeps going on. But Russia is losing power. I know they restructured their draft to kind of move it from 18 to 27 to 21 to 30. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's sustainable for Ukraine, but it doesn't feel like it's sustainable for Russia either. So kind of what are your thoughts on Russia's position right now? So that's a very good point. Russia's got four times the population size as Ukraine. Ukraine, you know, soldier to soldier is beating them soundly, quite frankly, but they don't, they can't go soldier to soldier because it's four to one. Russia's lost, I think, conservatively around 130,000 troops. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, that's just over a year. Uh, we lost 58,000 roughly in Vietnam, which was, you know, 25 years. So it's, it is astounding. It's staggering. The Wagner Group, which is primarily fighting around Bakhmut, that 2,000 deaths per 100 meters translates from Wagner going from a 45,000-person force to 7,000. So it's staggering. It is staggering. It's gonna, they're going to completely lose an entire generation of Russian men. And if anybody you know, you know, back there is concerned about that, I'm sure a lot of the mothers are, this is not going to turn around. This is going to get worse and worse. And the people they're sending out there, there are hardly ever been trained soldiers, but the trained soldiers are 
all dead. All the special operations are spessing all dead. Now they're just grabbing. I mean, I've seen articles grabbing street musicians, giving them a gun instead of a guitar and tell them to go out there. So and it just it's so it's compounding the problem because these individuals who shouldn't be there in the first place don't have any idea what they're doing. So they're just running into minefields. It's catastrophic when it comes to the loss of, of just human life. And of course, they don't like fighting the Ukrainian military. So they try to find the soft spots, which is Ukrainian civilians. And so now you got an army of criminals who is completely untrained, killing, you know, innocent men, women, and children. And that's just completely unacceptable. But you're, you are right. And then you've had, I mean, I've seen differing numbers anywhere from 300 to 400,000 men flee the country. Think about that. Flee the country. So Putin has a big problem. There's no doubt about it. The one thing he knows how to do is stay in power, but he is, his decisions are seriously challenging his ability to stay in power. Because he is, 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 is killing off an entire generation of Russian men. Let's like, I want to talk globally where we're at on a global level here. Cause I know some of these Ukrainian soldiers are training on Spain's tanks, the, Le- the leopard tanks that came out. So I want to talk about who's really involved on a global level and where they stand with this. I want to kind of touch base on global involvement in general. And then I think two other things that are concerning, they may not be is that Belarus's leaders are now visiting Dixon and strengthen their relationships with Moscow and Tehran. And then we talk about how the U.S. is encouraging the Chinese president to speak with Zelensky. And I feel like this is becoming such a global issue where everybody's coming at this from every angle. I mean, I feel like, is that a contradiction if Belarus president is trying to strengthen Tehran and Russia's relationship with Putin. That's kind of a serious thing. I mean, you know, that's not going to end well, but then we're coming in to say, hey, even though we have our issues with China, we now want them to step in to talk to Zelensky on the Ukraine side. I mean, is is there clarity or is this just everybody's going to come out their best angle to quell the war that's going on over there? So I think it's in everybody's interest, including Russia, to end the war. It was a terrible strategic decision and it's had massive consequences. And of course, it has on Ukraine and it has on Europe. I mean, if you go down the list of how much it's cost the economies of Europe, it's pretty substantial. But it's also in everybody's interest not to lose, including Russia, because Putin thinks he'll be removed from power, and he probably will if he loses. And Europe thinks, okay, if we see Ukraine, one, you know, we'll have to live with that forever. But what's next? You know, I mean, they are next, right? It's 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 on the border of NATO, and we all have a. Article 5 uh, responsibility to defend NATO, whether, you know, if they attack Poland, then they've just attacked NATO and we're all in. So it's in everybody's interest to try to get this over as fast as possible. So I think the one criticism you'll see from military analysts like myself is that they say, stop delaying some of these advanced weapon systems. I understand we're trying to avoid an escalation that ends in a world war. That's, That's obviously a notable goal, but it's also potentially delaying the end of the war. So we've provided tanks. The Leopard's a great example. The Leopard 2 is a German tank, but a lot of countries own them, like Spain and other countries. So they're giving them to Ukraine. We've offered the M1 Abram. I think that's going to take a little while to get there. We've already given them the Bradley, which is an infantry fighting vehicle. And now we're seriously talking about giving them the F-16 and potentially the A-10. These are fighter aircraft that could really help them when it comes to an offensive Maneuver warfare, combined arms. That's how the U.S. fights. That's how our partners fights. That's how we teach them to fight. It is utilizing all the principles of war 
with speed and using air, long-range artilleries, and ground maneuver to defeat the enemy. Russia doesn't fight that way. They fight like out of World War I, actually. That's why the Ukrainians have been successful in fighting such an overwhelmingly sized force. But as they get more advanced weapon systems, like everything we just mentioned, they're going to be more effective, maybe in the Ukrainians, to be able to take back more and more territory. And I think most people are pushing them to try to take all the territory on top of the Crimea Peninsula to isolate it and then really give Russia a operational or uh, military dilemma on whether they can actually hold Crimea. Hopefully then they will try to sue for peace and then it's up to the Ukrainians what they're willing to accept. Your question on Belarus. Yeah. Belarus is very closely tied to to Russia. I think if Russia was doing much better, we might have seen more more of them in this conflict. But I also think they're looking at Russia saying, you don't seem to be the right side to throw in our hat. Uh, hopefully that this is really poor performance of the Russian military gives them complete pause in joining that fight. Like I know the UK has extended their sanctions for another six months. So we kind of know where everybody stands. I'm going to kind of circle back to the financial side that the Pentagon has an 842 billion dollar budget for 2024, but it does not include any more additional funding between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, how does that, I mean, we always talk about, you know, the United States, our funding issues, you know, two big banks fell in the past two days. How are we, are we going to continue to find a way to keep pushing forward? We have a pretty big budget for 2024 and that budget does not include continued support for Ukraine and Russia. So I mean, how, where do you see the U.S. playing this out? I mean, we have election year coming up, the budgets. How do we play into this whole global situation with them, given where we're at right now? So I know there's been a lot made out of it for political reasons. But what I would say is we do have a very large budget for our military. The amount of money, although it's, it sounds pretty large that we provided the Ukrainians, is not that significant. It's just about a one and a half aircraft carriers. And I think if you ask how many aircraft carriers do the United States have? Most Americans won't have a clue. It's 11, just so you know, because I looked it up so I could say that. So that's, but that's important, right? So, and you say, well, why are we giving it to them? They have depleted one of our main adversaries, militaries, 50%. So if you think about it, the reason why we have a military is to be able to defend ourselves against adversaries. It's not just to have one. Yeah. So if, if a small portion of our defense budget went to a country who's doing it for their own purposes because they're getting attacked, but has depleted the Russian military to the point where they are essentially no threat to the United States. That's a good thing when it comes to national security. So it's not sharing. It's not sharing. Just like President Zelensky said, it's not sharing. And I think if we're going to cut things, and I'm sure there's other things we could cut, cut those. But if you're interested in America's security, you're interested in defending ourselves against a potential attack by Russia, who's shown they have no problem attacking another country, this is a good use of our resources. This is a good use of our resources. I'm sure we could find other things to cut. I'm sure there's other financial things that we can look at cutting. I, I won't get into it. I don't, go, I don't do politics here. But I'm telling you, it's not cutting you the support to Ukraine. Not only would that be cowardly and dishonorable to let a country who's getting you know massacred by another, if you just looked at it from the point of view of the United States, it's in our own interest to keep supporting Ukrainians who have proven not only their willingness, but their absolute capability of fighting and winning against the Russians. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I, I know you don't talk politics, but I feel like that message has not come clear to the average U.S. citizen. The average U.S. citizen here is like, 
why are we giving like 54 billion or 80 billion to the Ukraine? They don't understand the long tail of this because, you know, as you said, if Russia is depleted by 50 percent, that causes less of, you know, an attack on us. But I think it also really strains Russia's and China's, you know, alliance, for lack of a better word, because China doesn't want to bet on a losing dog. Nobody really does. So that also makes China also look to the U.S. to really try to find a long term, really good potential alliance. I mean, those are just my thoughts. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's very true. I mean, that's that's why you see such hesitation on China right now. I mean, we came up, we apparently, and I don't know this to be true, but it's certainly put in the public, we have intelligence that they're thinking about arming Russia. I think the hesitation goes directly to your point. I mean, you really want to like bet on somebody who's already lost so much of this fight and, and hasn't shown, I mean, it's it is difficult. To see how the Ukraine, how Ukrainians can defeat Russia and throw them out, but it's really difficult to figure out how Russia's going to win. Turn the map around, as we used to say, and look at it from the enemy's point of view. I don't know how they're going to do that because if Ukrainians are never going to give up, they're going to fight forever, and the Russians are losing more territory. It like say they get Bakhmut. Most Western military analysts, generals, people like myself have looked at it and said it's not even that important. It's going to be a pile of, of bloody rubble. There's nothing left. And they'll go, and what are they going to say? Okay, we've got a pile of bloody rubble. It was a, a specific, like a, a important uh, a train hub. Well, it's all completely destroyed. So there's no real way to see how Russia can win this unless they do something that would be catastrophic, like use, you know, low yield nuclear weapons. But I don't see them doing that because I think the United States have made it clear that that won't stand, that they will, they will likely then have to uh, deal with the United States. It's been good to have you on. And before you wrap, I mean, where do you see our long-term damage on this? I know, was it 90%? I'm probably wrong, correct me, of our grain and imports come from Russia and Ukraine. And I know we talked about this prices surging and how what's going on over this affecting us over here. I know there was an extension with the UN on the grain deal because most of our grain comes from that part of the world. I mean, is there any long-term effects? Is there any kind of, hey, the war is going to go on, but where do we see our effects of us around the world by this? Because the longer this war goes on, I mean, obviously the more lives are lost. It's damaging to um, everybody. I mean, you have that trickle effect. If it happens there, we start filling the effects over here. And I know a big chunk of the grain to the world comes from over there. I mean, do you see things getting better, getting worse, or how do you see some of the other parts of the world being affected the longer this war goes on. So a large part of the world's food comes from this, the grain, like you just said. And that has really affected the developing world to be the most affected by it. The United States has capacity to grow its own grain. We actually, and I'm, you know, I live out here in Montana, if you go to eastern Montana and a lot of other places, we pay uh, farmers to grow this stuff that's not grain so they'll have the ability to grow grain when we need it. It's kind of interesting. I can't remember the name of it, but we have abundant natural resources in the United States, but a lot of the world does not. So this has a major effect on their food staple grains, and it really causes hardship to those who who do rely on it. And as this goes longer and longer, the capacity to harvest the grain, ship the grain becomes more and more difficult. And I think that's where we'll see the world who's not only taxed financially in support of Ukraine and all these sanctions, but also taxed when it comes to providing 
sustenance for their own people. Yeah, it was so good having you on the show, Mick. I always love having you on. For people who do want to follow you besides our podcast, you are the um, security defense analyst for ABC. I know you've been on New York Times, CNN, because you track you everywhere. So there are other areas that keep getting more updated news on a daily occurrence from you, as long as they follow you on ABC and then CNN and the New York Times. So you're big ones, correct? Yes, absolutely. I, I work for ABC News as a national security and defense analyst, and they are more than happy for me to talk to particularly print news like the New York Times and Washington Post. But yes, that's I, uh, I have a lot of friends there, and I talk to them quite a bit when it comes to uh, international security issues. Yeah. So for everybody else, Mick could be found pretty much in all the top DMA right now talking about global news and stuff. It was so good having you on, Mick. Is there any kind of like last, anything that we missed that we need to talk about, anything that you want to bring up? whether it's from China to Russia, kind of on our global podcast with, is there anything else that we missed that we need to be aware of or that we need to be talking about right now? The North Korean issue is always an issue. We have a country that we believe has nuclear weapons and they continue to test the means to deliver it all the way to the continental United States. So they were shooting off missiles today. They keep getting further and further. We think they keep getting more accurate. So that's going to be a concern for us because, quite frankly, the individual that's in charge, Kim Jong-un, is uh, fairly unstable. So that could easily turn into a flashpoint. Also, if Iran does get a nuclear weapon, or at least the has enriched uranium up to the point to make it weaponized and then weaponize it, then we're going to have a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, and that's not going to be good for anybody. It's like we haven't really talked about North Korea a lot on our podcast. This has been, unfortunately, so much going on in the world that we're talking about. And I know that it's Every time you kind of look, it's like North Korea is they're just firing off missiles, they're firing off missiles every day, every week. Is there any like, I mean, I know it's serious, it's nuclear arms, but is there any real justification why North Korea just keeps doing that over and over? Is it just more to see how far they get, to, just to get attention? I mean, why is that always in the news, but it always seems to start and stop with they're just firing more missiles? Is there any like purpose to this with them? So, you know, by looking at it from Kim Jong-un's perspective, not necessarily North Korean people who, you know, many of whom are starving and they could probably better use their nation's resources on that than ballistic missiles. He likes to make it all about him and the rest of the world. So he plays to the nationalism that exists in his country. And every time he shoots a missile, he angers, of course, South Korea, Japan, the United States, and anybody that's reasonable. And then it becomes an us versus them. So I think politically, from the point of view of a dictator, that is what he's trying to do. And he, he's not, you know, if he looks around the world and says, you know, Muammar Gaddafi, if you remember him in Libya, gave up its, his nuclear weapons. He was killed in a ditch, right? Uh, Kim Jong-un did not. And now, you know, he has presidents meeting him on the DMZ, giving him hugs and such. So they view this, and now, and now Iran's looking at it and saying, should we get a nuclear weapon or not? So I hope they don't get a nuclear weapon. But you can see from their perspective, they view it as regime security, right? That said, I can't imagine any country would like to take over North Korea. So I don't really understand where they're coming from. But their country is known for its paranoia, particularly their leaders. I feel like between North Korea and Russia, those are the two biggest hot points for us as a country to keep an eye on right now. They both have the exact the poo and they have the exact same as the ego driven. There's no rhyme or reason for what they're doing. It's just to make noise, get attention and assert 
power that they really don't deserve and they shouldn't be using because they're using it in all the wrong ways or their people are suffering the most. I'd agree. That seems to be the case with most you know, autocrats is uh, they feel like they've always got to be doing something probably to keep their people looking outward because they're not very good at running their country and they're not very good at looking out for the interests of their citizens. So they try to make it more about another country and an us versus them because it does play on that nationalism. Yeah. It was so good having you on, Mick. I'm going to let you go. Thank you for being on the show again this month. We look forward to seeing you again in a few weeks. This is Sarah Miller, Marjorie DeHay with the Access Effect and Global News Watch. And we'll see everybody with Mick in a few weeks. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for the Access Effect podcast. To find more podcasts or to learn more about our host and guests, please visit theaxiseffect.com. Thank you for joining us for this special report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.